Hey guys, and welcome to episode 44 of Underrated, a show where we discuss great films that we think just don't get enough love. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, and I am here with my co-host and all-around cool dude, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, not bad. Did you uh, enjoy your week off? I did. Uh, kind of breathed a sigh of relief. We're coming into our last week of my summer class, so that was that was acceptable time off for me. <laughs> yeah, last week was a mess for me. My, my Wi-Fi went out, then I had to put my computer in the shop for a couple days, so yeah, w- recording kind of wasn't an option. And so there's a change of plans. I know last week, or two weeks ago, we announced we would be uh, reviewing Men in Black 3, but we had already scheduled a guest for this week, um, and I still haven't introduced him. So uh, today we are really happy to be joined by Patrick Hicks from the Feelin' Film Podcast. How you doing? I am good. It's good to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, so uh, before we move on, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself and uh, whatever you might be involved in online or podcast or whatnot? Sure. So as you mentioned, I co-host a podcast called Feelin' Film, where we look at movies uh, from a, an emotional reaction standpoint, how it makes us ultimately feel, and generally just have a good conversation about the elements of film in general and specifically the movies that we talk about how the story and characters and technical aspects of it really resonate with us emotionally and how we walk into and out of a theater feeling uh, our expectations and and whatnot. And so we've been going strong for about uh, just over a year now. And um, I co-host with my buddy Aaron, who I've been just good friends with for probably 15, 20 years now. And uh, yeah, so I, I do that. And when I'm not staying up late talking about movies. I am uh, working as a multimedia designer for a company that specializes in e-learning for military organizations and whatnot, which sounds like a lot of kind of cool stuff going on, but really I'm just trying to make stuff look pretty and uh, make the, the end user, which is the military student, stay engaged in what would otherwise be boring uh, training for air crew and stuff like that. So I've been doing that for probably about 10 years now, and it's given me an outlet to tell stories, which is what I like to do in my spare time. I'm an amateur filmmaker when I can, when I have the time to to write and and work with other uh, talented people in the uh, in the local market here in Little Rock, Arkansas. But uh, other than that, man, I just I just love telling stories. I love watching movies and talking about the story telling aspect of it and um yeah that's pretty much who i am all right well nice um so today uh, you being the guest it'll be your pick what are we talking about today well there is a film that uh actually aaron and i the last time before he visited me a few weeks ago the last time we got together was back in uh i guess it was 2012 or 2010 and we went to go see uh, the the Andrew Garfield reboot of The Amazing Spider-Man. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to go back, especially in light of the <laughs> the next iteration of Spider-Man that has come out, hopefully the last for a while, uh, to, to go back and, and visit what I consider probably my favorite iteration of the, the man in red and blue that is not called Superman. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, so before we get into that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Um, More reviews kind of help it make it it easier for people to find us. Uh, It doesn't have to be a lot, just a few words and five stars would be very much appreciated. Uh, And before we get into the main review, um, have either of you seen any cool movies that you want to talk about 
uh, I'll start with uh, you, Patrick. Well, this is actually a rewatch for me, but back in January, I went to go see Lego Batman, which is at this point, one of my top five favorite movies of 2017. I, I don't remember. I don't remember laughing any harder in the theater than I did at this one, but I, I recently bought the Blu-ray, but in our town, I think in a lot of towns that have a regal theater, there's the summer movie express, which is where on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, they put on dollar movie dollar movies that uh, have been in, in the theaters already or have recently come out of the theaters. And really it's catering to young kids to give parents a break for a couple of hours to let their kids be entertained. And I was, uh, I'm the parent of a four-year-old who is a, uh, you know, he's an all boy. And <laughs> I was really, really excited about getting the chance to take him to see Lego Batman. So uh, this last Tuesday, I packed him up, got him some snacks. We walked into the theater and I, I looked at him point blank and I said, Carson, because that's his name. I said, Carson, I am really, really excited about <laughs> just exposing you to this. This is really exciting. This is one of daddy's favorite movies this year. And I know that you love Lego and you love Batman. So what better way to combine the two here? And I left the theater laughing even hard. I mean, just laughing at the same parts and picking up some more great, just fun Easter eggs here and there. And I remember thinking, gosh, I want a Lego Batman, Lego Superman team up at some point <laughs> in my lifetime. I really, really, really want that because I'm a huge Superman fan and uh, he just... Uh, I don't think he gets enough. Superman doesn't get enough love for, you know, for some valid reasons, but mostly invalid reasons from a subjective standpoint. So yeah, I, I recently had a chance to rewatch that and it was a lot of fun. Nice. And uh, is that all? Yeah, that was it. That's um, between, between feeling film and work and, and my family life. I, I barely get a chance to catch anything extra. All right. Uh, so how about you, James? Yeah. So what I've watched, I had a couple of rewatches as well. Um, I introduced Joseph to a uh, 21 Jump Street because I had I watched that several years ago. Well, probably probably around two years ago, and I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. And so he ended up going out and buying it so he could see if uh, if it was as good as I was saying it was. And I think we both really enjoyed it again. Um, and then I introduced another friend to uh, to two of. Uh, Two other comedies that are some of my favorite comedies, which is Hot Fuzz, which is probably like the third time I've seen it this year, and then uh, Tropic Thunder. And so I, this has just been kind of a week of me showing other people comedies I love. Um, and then, ironically enough, last night I ended up watching the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man um, and then went, you know, obviously the next day immediately into the other one. Um, but the only movie that I saw for the first time this week was the indie movie, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which okay. it got, there was a lot of hype built around. I think it has like a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and I, I get why people enjoy it. It just may not have been my cup of tea. It's, it's weird. I, I do enjoy dark comedies. But whenever dark comedies tend to go on the more violent side of things, that's when they end up losing me. Just especially when they try to be like super grounded and very realistic and gory kind of violence. And this movie just took a lot of really weird turns 
and I don't think that it always worked best. But the only reason why I would still recommend this movie to people, so long as they can handle the violence, is that Elijah Wood is absolutely hilarious in it. And he absolutely made the whole thing worth watching. So, if it's on Netflix, and if you're ever bored and you're wanting to watch a different movie that probably no one else has seen, um, it's enough for a recommendation, I would say. Huh. Well, I guess uh, I would advise you not to watch James Gunn's Super then, if you don't like violent dark comedies. <laughs> yeah, that one. That one was another one that I did see, and I was like, "This is this is for people in the world," but I'm just not one of those people. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I I went out and saw The Big Sick. Um, I'm not normally much of a comedy guy, but I thought this one was was really good. Uh it was you know very sweet. And also very funny, but it also it what really impressed me was how it managed to keep this sense of uh kind of messy realism and honesty uh even while being you know a very funny comedy uh, it's, it's it's you know it's a it's a romance and I thought it the way it examined you know relationships just all kinds of different different types of family relationships romantic relationships was uh was uh, very well done and it felt it felt real and honest. Um, very enjoyable film. Uh, well worth a look if you haven't seen it. I definitely want to see that. I, I I've had you and I think you're like the tenth person I can I can actually count that says go see this, go see this, and I really really want this to happen for myself. I may try to see if my wife wants to go at some point to see it because I love Ray Romano, and knowing that he plays the he doesn't play the comedic presence in that which is really intriguing to me. But I've heard nothing but good things about it. Yeah, I think him and Holly Hunter. Are- might just be my favorite part of the film. They're really good. Good stuff. All right, and I finally got around to seeing uh, Tim Burton's two Batman films, you know, Batman and Batman Returns. And boy, have times changed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, after hearing for years people praise these films, I was kind of, I went in expecting, you know, normal films. Maybe with, a, you know, with a bit of camp, you know, that comes with the time period and, you know, Tim Burton. And oh boy, <laughs> so it was kind of quite the shock seeing just how insanely campy they are. Um, and it really turned me off for a while. Essentially, but about halfway through the first one, I had to tell myself that I'm basically watching Adam West's show with lots of gruesome violence. And then I could kind of get, sit back and enjoy the, just the insanity of it all. Um, overall, I, I don't think I really like them. I, I think I enjoy them. And I, I definitely appreciate your other know, historical significance what they started off and you know the co- comic book films are my favorite film genre so i i i like them for what they did but i don't know they i just think tim burton way went way too far overboard in, in making it into a live action cartoon you know the the, the I, his idea of a terrifying group of violent thugs is juggling clowns on unicycles so, so it's, it's it's kind of it's, they're very much their own thing. They don't they, they don't really feel like comic book movies. It's interesting, but uh, there are things that I did really like. Uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker is amazing, uh, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. I, I mean, like, I've heard all kinds of praise, and she actually even in these films surprised me. Just uh, the different layers and like kind of emotional vulnerability she's able to bring into her role, which is also crazy and insane and bizarrely sexualized and all kinds of crazy things um yeah so overall i think there's an entertaining element to the campiness and there are some really great performances i'm not a huge fan but 
<laughs> kind of got clobbered in the feeling film group when I uh, voiced my displeasure at them. Well, it's interesting that you call it camp because if you <laughs> if that's camp to you, then the Joel Schumacher stuff that comes after it must really <laughs> go off the rails for you because that's camp to me. I I didn't care for the the second in. Of, of of Tim Burton's movies, I really enjoyed the first one, and I, I saw it in the theater. And I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Prince, and Michael Keaton's one of my favorite actors, just in his wide array of of films. We just covered Mr. Mom, nice. of all things, on Feeling Film, and I think that the entrance into into the superhero genre back when it came out, I think it was '89. Uh, to me, in comparison to the things that came before, it was a far more advanced thing. I can agree that it definitely feels dated in a lot of in a lot of ways, but I think Tim Burton, in comparison to what Schumacher did later on, is probably leaning more towards the the what would be the Christopher Nolan uh, approach when it comes to comes to the Dark Knight, as opposed to your your Adam West Batman sixty six onomatopoeia type stuff <laughs> that I think Schumacher really tried to embrace, and I I appreciate that for the hilarious silliness of it uh you know definitely not for the the bat nipples that would come later on with uh with um uh clooney uh, yeah clooney but uh but of those of that era i think for me i think that uh that keaton keaton is my batman of that era i don't know where he sits for me with um with bale and with uh, with affleck now but um but he's definitely up there <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say that because I actually think uh, Donner's Superman the movie per- might uh, might have a lot more in common with what the superhero genre has become. And these these to me feel almost like a weird kind of off chapter of like kind of experimentation. I don't okay. Know. Yeah. Well, I, I, if you say Donner, don't tell me the Donner cut version of like Superman two. I hated that version, but I was thinking yes. Superman the movie. Just oh yeah, yeah. That, that, that was that was forward thinking. I mean, that was in terms of what it did for superhero movies is what I believe movies like Tron did for like computer technology and forward thinking in terms of futuristic storytelling. And so yeah, I mean, it's Superman to me, even even as dated as it feels, is is very much in the spirit of what superhero movies are today. Yeah. So I guess if you haven't seen these movies, uh, go with low expectations and understand the kind of movie. I mean, this is the, this kind of movie where the Joker has two separate dance parties to the hot new uh, Prince song. So <laughs> just, just kind of understand what you're getting into. There's definitely pleasures to be had, uh, but I, I, it just didn't work terribly well for me. All right. So is there anything else you all guys want to mention before you get into the main topic? I'm good. I think I'm good to go. All right. Let's begin our review for The Amazing Spider-Man. The Amazing Spider-Man was released in 2012. It was directed by Mark Webb on a budget of somewhere between 200 and 230 million, which was actually pretty surprising for me. I uh, didn't think it was that much, um, and, but it grossed uh, 757 million. It starred Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Sally Field, uh, Reese Ifans, I think I say, or something like that, uh, Martin Sheen, Dennis Leary, and Irfan Khan. It was written by James Vanderbilt. Steve Clovis and Alvin Sargent, who actually wrote on all three of uh, Raimi's films as well. It was shot by John Schwartzman, and the score was composed by James Horner. And uh, this last time, it really made me sad that that he was gone because I I think the so- the score is a uh, very solid. Yeah, I agree. I I think that the score helps set up 
or at least accent this interesting tone of the film. And when when you bring in a franchise, when you take a franchise like the Spider-Man universe and you know it's another reboot, you can't help but make a comparison to the previous entries. And with Raimi's trilogy, or at least the first two, setting such a high bar, I think that uh, the approach that Webb makes, specifically with using the uh, the the talent of of Horner and the the type of score, sets up and accents this more Batman Begins type tone that mm-hmm. is different, and and that's what really surprised and 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 impressed me about this iteration of Spider-Man was it wasn't it <laughs> you know sad to say maybe happy to say the this felt to me like a precursor to the approach that Man of Steel ended up becoming this this isn't your th- this is a Spider-Man that you sort of know but we're going to tell a different we're going to tell this Spider-Man story in a different way and yeah James Horner's score I think was very much a part of supporting that idea that that Webb was was trying to uh, articulate through the story. Yeah, and before we move on, real quick, uh, can I get you, Patrick, to uh, read that brief synopsis I sent you? Absolutely. Do you want me to do it in a movie voice? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> After Peter Parker is bitten by a genetically altered spider, he gains newfound spider-like powers and ventures out to solve the mystery of his parents' mysterious death. Okay. Cue the music. Yeah. <laughs> would you, Would you mind recording all our uh, synopsis in the future? <laughs> sure. I'll just say, I'll just I'll just send you a bill. <laughs> say, I'm in. <laughs> I'm gonna rewatch it. Makes now. you that intrigued. No, that's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, this movie has a very, I think, interesting legacy um, as far as you know, the public's consciousness of it. You know, it. I think it, it was undeniably greenlit as a corporate cash grab. You know, Sony has to make a Spider-Man film every five years so they lose the rights. Um, and Raimi was out, so reboot. Um, and while it got decent uh, reviews upon release, I think the public's perception of it has steadily, steadily declined over the years, especially after uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but I think af- after Homecoming, you know, I, I, it doesn't seem like a lot of people look back on this with all that much uh, fondness. Um, so, uh, Patrick, uh, why don't you tell us, you know, why you wanted to uh, talk about this film on here? Well, when I when I went into this, Spider-Man's always, when it comes to the Marvel universe, he's always been one of my favorite superheroes, and I think he's, I mean, he's probably the most popular in terms of you know merchandising and profiting uh, characters in in the superhero world. I, I think I remember. When there was a video that came up that talked about the Sony Marvel relationship and how, you know, all because of Sony owning the the character of, of Spider Man, all the movie money goes straight to them, but all the merch that comes after that goes straight to Marvel. And there was a statistic that said that Spider Man outsold, uh, I think it was Captain America, Batman, and Superman combined last year. I mean, it was insane. I mean, he just, yeah, I mean, he I just that. sold a ton in toys. And so he's a very popular character. So I'm definitely in that bandwagon. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect going in, into this. I, something intrigued me about it. I remember liking Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins and seeing this kind of grittier, grounded, more quote, realistic type of approach to the web slinger. 
which was different than what we got with Sam Raimi's, which was more of a, what I would call a, a video game style, uh, akin to a cartoon, uh, which there was nothing wrong with that. So as, as someone who at that time was really getting into the, the art style of movies and the storytelling aspect of it, it really intrigued me this new approach that, that Webb and company were taking with this grounded, realistic approach. And when I watched it, there were so many things about it that supported that idea in a very, very positive way for me. Um, there, from the moment that we, you know, we knew it was an origin story, which I can tell you one thing I like about homecoming is that it was not an origin story. I, we, we, you know, we, we got, we got the origin story again, but the movie begins with this mystique, this mystery about Peter Parker's parents um, and not about necessarily him getting bitten by a spider and, you know, great power comes great responsibility. I mean, none of, I mean, that, I mean, that line was not even spoken in this one. And so it was less about his, it wasn't just about his revenge for his uncle Ben. It was, this was ultimately a Peter Parker story. And that's what really mm-hmm. intrigues me is that in the same sense that Man of Steel is just much about Clark Kent as it is about Superman, this is equally as much about Peter Parker as it is uh, Spider-Man. And I thought that what what this creative team did was they approached it and said, look, if we're going to get the opportunity to reboot this for whatever, you know, whatever the reasons behind it to maintain the rights or whatever, let's give them something fresh. Let's try something new. And walking out of the theater, I remember thinking, man, I am excited about where this is going. And I was incredibly let down, obviously, by not only the stoppage of the Spider-Man movies, but the distinct change in tone and even approach that the sequel took. And that's that's probably where a lot of your overall criticism comes from this iteration of Spider-Man. It's from you had this very promising first film and this really weird second film that felt like a just a setup movie akin to a lot of your second features and of course the failure of that i think just kind of added to the heaping of 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 negativity towards the first one but man as a standalone feature this thing just was i remember smiling so many times on my rewatch going man i'm so glad that we're going to talk about this because i can and i started just writing down all these notes like oh i gotta talk about this gotta talk about this (laughs) It's just, I adore so many parts about this film. And I, more than anything, I just adore the approach that, that Webb takes by saying, I want to tell a different story. I want people to be intrigued by, um, this guy, this kid, this high school, uh, hipster (laughs) and who, who doesn't just get superpowers, but he, he's trying to figure out life. He's trying to figure out how he's living without his parents and what it means to grow up. And I just think for, for me coming out of that film, it it was less about a superhero movie. And in some ways it was a coming of age. I won't call it a coming of age film, but it, it had just all the elements of something that had the potential to do something really great. And I was really sad that it it kind of petered out. (laughs) No pun intended. Sorry. (laughs) But yeah, I just, it, there, there was, there's a lot there for me that, that I took away from it. Yeah. I actually I do have a lot to say about Peter's character. I think they do some really interesting stuff. But at first, uh, I don't think I've ever heard your thoughts on this on this uh, film, James. So whenever I first saw it, uh, I was a really big fan. Um, 
And I, like you, I was like super excited to see where they were going to take this. And then I saw Amazing Spider-Man 2 and I convinced myself that I loved it. <laughs> it was funny. I actually <laughs> saw like my memory on Facebook, the first post I made after seeing it. And I just shook my head saying, wow, that's, that's definitely not what I think about it now. But um, just I think that I almost started to become like everyone else thinking... Yeah, the the whole Andrew Garfield Spider-Man era was okay. Just not really appreciating the merits of this first one. So I'm actually happy that you picked this one because I was reminded of how much I liked it. Um, it's like thinking whenever before, whenever I was thinking back on the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, I was kind of like exactly what you were saying, where just the negativity that's kind of surrounded it has engulfed both movies for me or did and I was like yeah it was probably is okay but it's definitely not one of the better ones and so rewatching it reminded me of my first theater experience going no this is there's lots of good stuff in this movie it's it's actually really really good so uh, just for my own benefit I'm glad this is the one you chose <laughs> yeah there's something really I, I really love about you know watching a film with the podcast in mind you know knowing I have to have something to talk about so I pay a lot closer attention you know to the to the characters and the arcs and the story. And I actually, I, 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 you know, I discovered a whole nother layer to Peter Parker's arc that I had, I've seen this film like three times before, but I never noticed before. So I, I came away, you know, liking it probably more than I had since like, you know, my thir- first uh, theatrical viewing. So yeah, I'm also really glad that you chose to bring it on. Um, so you just, I guess just start exploring it. Why don't you start, uh, go first, Patrick? Well, first of all, the the way in which this is layered as a drama first, action second, romance third, and, and essentially comic book movie fourth, I thought that was a great approach. The I mentioned the opening sequence of getting this intrigue about the mystery about Parker's parents. We knew that it may or may not be solved in this film, and the future for that was great. But I I think what we get is that first third of the movie, that first act, we are introduced to so much about Peter Parker as a character and how he is embracing the things that we know about him from the comic books, that he's kind of a nerdy teenager. But we also have this kind of hidden strength that comes out early on when he is being um, I remember he's in he's he's in a high he's in the high school hallway and he's putting a picture in the trophy case and Flash Thompson comes up and kind of scares him or whatever and then later on Flash Tom- Flash is picking on a kid and we see Parker kind of come in and say put him down you know put him down and he just says put him down Eugene you know as a way to just sort of taunt him a little bit and that came as a surprise to me because I wouldn't expect the Peter Parker that I know to kind of stand up for somebody, which sounds kind of lame because, you know, he's your neighborhood, neighborhood Spider-Man. But the iterations that I've read about him and especially in light of homecoming is he seems more meek than that. And I feel like in these opening shots, we get so much information from Garfield's performance about Parker, about how he is a smart guy, how he is a loner, how he is somewhat misunderstood, but he's got this kind of quiet strength, this quiet strength that exists in in this world. And as the movie progresses, we find out why that is. We find out where he gets his in you know intellectual 
prowess. Uh, we get all these things that are validated by his relationships with like Gwen Stacy and with Aunt May and, and to an extent, Uncle Uncle Ben. So I, I think that you begin to start falling in love with Peter Parker early on, which is the intent that these storytellers are trying to, to, to do. They're trying to say, we want you to connect with him. And so when we get to the actual like discovery of the spider becoming Spider-Man, even that is somewhat gradual. Uh, it kind of kind of finishes itself out almost in the middle of the film. And I thought that was great that we are being trusted as an audience to to love the alter ego or the man first before we fall in love with the superhero. So th- I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, the whole mystery surrounding the parents, I think it's one of my issues mainly because of how it's resolved in the second film. But mm. one thing that I think it did add, as you said, was that air of mystery. It, uh, um, you know, it, it, it differentiated quite a lot from say Raimi's version. It was kind of the psychological headspace, all that put uh, Peter in, you know, from the start, even, you know, though he's, he's found, he's now found a home with his aunt and uncle. He loves them and they have a good relationship. It's still, there's this gnawing mystery and doubt that is constantly present in him as a character just because mm-hmm. his parents left him and then they died. They had something important to do and they, they're gone. Yeah. And so he's the entire film, you know, he's constantly trying to push and just figure out, you know, who he is, what is his place in the world? Um, and, you know, did his parents really love him or did they not care about him? All that stuff. And I think there is a lot of anger in a, Garfield's performance just mm. even though you know he's 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 a decent stand-up guy you know he'll stand up to the bullies but there's also kind of this this, this disenfranchisement and anger and how he uh plays himself and so once he becomes spider-man it's it's I, the film was kind of asking you know, what would happen if an angry kid became a superhero and yeah, in this case see that. he spends the entire first half of the film only focusing on revenge I, I noticed this time he doesn't do any actual heroics till about the halfway point on the bridge and it's that moment that he essentially learns what it is to be a hero. That moment where he's forced to, you know, go down there and pull and co- you know coach this kid to climb out of the burning car. And you know when he see that moment is like a long drawn out shot when he hands the kid to his father and he just sees the father's joy and relief. I think it's that moment that Spider Man was truly born as the hero we know him to become. Because all, all before that he was all just he was only concerned with his vengeance. And you know after that. We never hear about this guy he's chasing again. And a lot of people criticize that as, you know, a subplot that was just dropped. But actually, I think that, that's how life is. You know, you have things in your life that are really important to you. And then as you grow mature, you find other things and the other, the old, your old hobbies or, or pursuits kind of fade out. And I think that's what they're trying to do is he's a hero now. He's, he's not as concerned with the seeking of seeking the vengeance. And I thought it was a really strong, subtle arc You're going – from the angry kid who's just really arrogant and irresponsible, even while he's a hero, to, you know, essentially, you know, getting over himself and learning how to be selfless and learning how to use his abilities for the good of others. And a lot of people criticize the, uh, they said, you know, that's not my Peter Parker. Peter Parker would never stand up to Flash. He's too much of a hipster. But I think it, this that's that's what an arc is. You have them start out in a place that you that, that you don't like and you move them to where they should be. So, I mean... Did you want Tobey Maguire again? I mean, 
this is a new iteration. I think it's a good it's good that we got this other this very different character that still ends up in a very similar place. Yeah. I think that when you look at this iteration of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, that's what it is. It's an iteration. And I I read comics for a long time and the character, the, the, the spirit of the character never changes. But what what makes the 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 world of comics so great is the amount of writers that get a chance to tell stories about a particular character. I remember never caring about Daredevil until um, until a certain author uh, came along and started writing. And because of that, I then started uh, following his stories after the Daredevil run. I didn't necessarily just stick with Daredevil. I just started following uh, following, following him. And I think when you have different writers in the comics, you get a different voice for the character. As long as the spirit of that character stays intact, I think the same thing applies in the film, film world, that Mark Webb wanted to give Spider-Man a different voice. He created uh, this hipster that carried a skateboard who had a little bit of spunk. And he chose to take the 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 Ben death subplot and sort of diminish it as the movie went on as a means to exactly what you said, grow Peter Parker as a character. I love the fact that you mentioned that that moment where he rescues the uh, the, the little boy. I think his, I forget his name, but uh, Jack, that's his name. On our show, we we have what's called a connecting point, which is that moment that kind of sums up our emotional takeaway from it. The moment that we remember is like, that's kind of what makes the rest of the film worth it. And that was the moment for me when I watched that because he takes off his mask. Okay, so that's the first thing I'm going, wow, this is weird. You got a superhero that's taking off his mask. He's making himself vulnerable to this kid. And he he says, I'm just a normal guy. And then it shows so much about the fact that this film is just as much about Peter as it is about Spider-Man. And then he tosses that mask to Jack with, with such like calm confidence. And then he says, put the mask on. And he says, it's going to make you strong. And I, I like you, I'd love that moment for the exact same reasons you said, because that moment, I think he owns up to who he is as this culmination of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And so he can carry himself with, a lot more confidence. He can embrace what's coming next, which is the big showdown with uh, with, um, with with Lizard, and and ultimately having to face the the consequences of of having to let Gwen Stacy go for the time being. Uh, so I, I thought that yeah, that was a great moment. To me, this movie is like part of the reason of why I don't mind origins. Like <laughs> I would have been okay with Homecoming be like being an origin because you you can tell the same story like y'all are saying you can you can keep the character intact but you can also put your new spin on it as you said give him a new voice and to me watching i just literally watching spider-man one last night and then amazing spider-man now Obviously, a lot of the same beats happen. He's bitten by a spider. He's falling in love with a girl at school. His uncle is dead. It's because of like there's some like very many similar things going on. But all it all it takes is like a change in tone, and just some character differences, and trying to take on entirely different character arcs. 
they can go a like a, a big way. And one of the reasons why I love Origins is because of one of the things that you were saying, Patrick, where it starts the movie starts off with the intention of getting us invested in Peter as a character. So that when he finally is bitten and when he find, he's putting on the mask and he's becoming Spider-Man, we already care. And that to me has always been one of the benefits of an origin story is they kind of have to be character focused. Mm-hmm. You know, the sequel comes around and it's all about the hero villain dynamic. But this is very much Peter Parker's story about what happens when he's bitten after we've already established who he is as a character and how that changes this person that we kind of already know fairly well at this point. Um, And so that was one of the things that I remember being impressed the most whenever I first saw it and then being re-impressed again whenever I saw it again, especially back-to-back, was just how it sticks, in my opinion, faithfully to the source material because he's still kind of a loser just (laughs) in a different way. The, The first one was, you know, the very, very nerdy, like glass, just... Very typical nerdy, and then this is more updated, like kind of loner, pseudo hipster, probably sits by himself at the lunch table kind of character. Mm-hmm. And so they're both accurate to the source material, and it's it's not contradicting any of the greater lore, really. Mm-hmm. But it's still its own thing, and it's found its own tone that's able to stay faithful, but. Uh, but benefit this new iteration that uh, and I just I don't think people really gave it that chance. I don't think people acknowledge the fact that, like you said, in comic books, writers come on and they don't really change the character, but they put their own take on it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what part of the reason why I enjoyed this movie is because it was very much its own thing and it cared about it, its characters in a way that I think. You know, a lot of movies don't really, especially its two leads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things. Even though I slightly prefer Homecoming for different reasons, I think this film definitely has it beat as far as you know, you know, really deep, meaningful character arcs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I kind of give it a no. People just just try just try to re- say we should all just forget the Amazing Spider-Man's ever happened. I, I think yeah, as we said, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff here. Um. So I guess you're know, moving into some of the performances. I mean, we've been talking about Peter Parker, but Andrew Garfield is excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, he's more than proved himself as you know one of the best young actors working in in multiple films. You know, Hacksaw Ridge, Silence, and mm-hmm. but you can really see that potential here. You know, as as I, as I explained, there's all these you know warring elements he has to play in his character. You know, you got the nerdy kid, you know, the stand-up guy that hates bullies. But also, you know, the underlying anger and arrogance that mm-hmm. leads him to try, you know, and humiliate others or kind of torment the uh, criminals when he captures them, and and we and then on top of that, we get we get the believable growth, you know, into the guy he becomes at the end, and he has this amazing chemistry with Emma Stone. Uh, I think Toby's ultimately my favorite, but this guy he's really close just because <laughs> he brings so much. Uh, just heart to the character and depth and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> well, let me just say this. Yes. Garfield and Stone's chemistry was off the wall good. And I remember, and I'm going to plug a comic here. So I want you guys to just, you know, this 
<laughs> if you haven't if you haven't read it, it's a six issue it's a trade paperback but it's 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 part of a trilogy by an art by a writer named Jeff Loeb with art by a guy named Tim Sale and this particular one's called Spider-Man Blue it's part of a, a trilogy uh, Daredevil Yellow is another one Hulk Gray is another one but all three of these these mini series focus on our main character and their love interest and how they had to sacrifice those relationships in in light of their their history of of being the superhero what we knew going into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man was MJ 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 that's all we you know that's who we know and then Spider-Man 3 we get this kind of weird <laughs> kind of cameo <laughs> subplot for for Gwen Stacy and an After- awesome dance scene <laughs> Let's not talk about that. <laughs> but we get into The Amazing Spider-Man, and I clearly remember this was shortly after or shortly around the time that I read Spider-Man Blue and being so excited because Spider-Man Blue is about the story of 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 par- Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, his first love, and the, the tragic end to that story. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal in the comics when that when that story arc happened. So when we get introduced to them and we see this great chemistry and me knowing what's going to end up happening, because you know, they're not going to ignore that portion of their, of their relationship. I, I was just so drawn into their chemistry and I love the fact there was an interview by, uh, by Emma Stone that said, this isn't about, uh, Gwen Stacy falling in love with Spider-Man. It just reinforced, this is about Gwen, uh, Gwen Stacy falling in love with Peter Parker. And I love the fact that they were both incredibly awkward teenagers to each other. There are these little <laughs> moments when he's trying to ask her out and he's like, do you want to? And she's like, uh, and he said, or oh, we could probably do something else. She's like, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do that. And he's like, okay, I'll call you. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. And they're the way in which their relationship grows from being just flirtatious, childlike almost to full blown, romance there were parts of it that felt a little rushed for me but for the most part their chemistry really sold that for me and by the end of the film that last scene where you get the rain coming down and she comes to his house and he says i can't do this i can't do this i almost wish what would have ended at that moment instead of the scene in the classroom where he makes that line uh you know about promises are made to be broken or whatever and you get her half smile the best kind yeah I, i was kind of put off by that because I was like, leave some room at the table for mystery there. I mean, because you know, they're going to get together at some point and mm. I, I don't want to know that necessarily, but I just, I loved it. I loved seeing them on screen. I love the fact that they dated after this because it, it kind of validated that, that real chemistry that they had. But I'm just, I'm just in love with the, the Peter Parker, Emma, uh, Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, relationship so seeing that on the screen and seeing it played by these two these two actors just uh, yes and yes again is what i say it was just fantastic mm-hmm. it's interesting you mentioned the uh his uh where he promises her father to uh leave her out of it uh that that part really annoyed me because you know watching i was like when he's when he when he tells you i can't do this like wow this is a surprising moral character and you idiot <laughs> but, <laughs> I know the way the the one thing I love about Amazing Spider-Man 2 is how their arc is paid off. I think it's like one of the great superhero film arcs. So 
it really bothered me when it first happened. I was like, come on, you, you destroyed his moral character. What are you doing? But I, I, yeah, I, I do like, you know, how it's paid off and developed overall. So it doesn't bother me nearly as much now. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm kind of going to defend that line because I like y'all. I thought the same thing, but I'm going to go ahead and like use a sequel to praise this movie because I, you know, he's very much making this movie with the sequel in mind. And so what I like that he did is he kind of ends it with that, oh, but those are the best kind, ha ha ha, like, we're still going to date. And you think, wow, so they they went through all this time to try to pretend that there are consequences and that this is just one of the prices that he's going to have to pay for being a superhero, not here's the ending, they're, they're dating, happy. But he wrote that line, this very teenager-ish kind of line with the intention of saying, nope, there's... Her dad was right. And so I think it's kind of a bold decision to end it on such a, like an optimistic tone that kind of promises that things are going to be okay in the next one. And then to remind you, remind the audience of exactly why Captain Stacy made him make that promise. So yeah, knowing that he knew exactly where he wanted to go in the sequel kind of makes me like that moment just because it's like, it's setting, it's, trying to get the audience to be like oh yay they can still be together you know f consequences oh wait dang it they're still there like i kind of like it well and and yeah yeah, i agree with you james i think that if we don't get what i think is probably one of the most amazing superhero death sequences in cinematic history in the second film this line feels incredibly cheap uh because you're right it's we, we sort of get lied to saying, oh, it's going to be okay when it's really not. I mean, I knew that story. And so I'm going, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? So yes, there was definitely a false sense of happiness in my heart when I <laughs> had this movie in the way it does, knowing that it's, it's going to happen. I mean, you can't draw this out for three films. You can't not end her life in the Spider-Man 3 because, or maybe you can. I mean, I'd be interested to see what kind of story would be kind of the middle one, but... But yeah, I, I don't think I if you didn't have that moment, I don't know that this line would have as much interesting weight that it does uh, to someone who either does or doesn't know what their history actually is and how her demise comes to be, because it's heartbreaking. I mean, I read the comic and I was heartbroken. And so seeing it on the screen, I was like, oh, that's killer. That's so killer, literally <laughs> and figuratively. So rough. It's so not good. Yeah. As messy as Amazing Spider-Man 2 is, I think that actually might be the most emotionally impactful death in a superhero movie for me. Mm. Like, there is just nothing but perfection in that scene. I agree. Oh, and by the way, spoilers for The Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> the spoiler is it wasn't very good. That's the spoiler. <laughs> We're doing you a favor. <laughs> just go read the comics. <laughs> it's, they're, they're better. <laughs> Uh, and I guess we should probably mention Emma Stone because uh, ain't she great? Uh, you know, and just, just beyond the, the the great, fantastic chemistry she has with um, uh, Andrew Garfield and being absolutely stunning, I like that they didn't go the MJ route and just use her as bait for Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, they let her help him in a way that wasn't ridiculous like it is in Spider-Man 2. But also, you know, it it was a re- realistic thing that she could do as not being a superhero. But also, I think it revealed, you know, her strength of character, you know, being willing 
to put herself at risk, you know, if, if that's what it took to uh, help save the city and help her boyfriend. So I, I, I think they they used her character a bit better than the uh, original trilogy did uh, Kristen Dunst as MJ. And I think just Emma Stone is just, she's just wonderful. She's a strong character. Gwen Stacy is a strong character. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's what I enjoyed was the contrast of kind of having three movies where at one point MJ has to be rescued in each of those movies. And I'm going, Pete, look, if you got to rescue your girlfriend that many times, maybe you need to think about a different woman because you need some strength in your life. That's not just coming from your, you know, your spider bite. Right. And I think that what we have here early on is this great introduction to a strong woman in Gwen Stacy, where (laughs) just after he's in the fight with flash Thompson, she goes, she goes, uh, uh, what's your name? And he goes, you don't know my name? She goes, no, I know your name. I just want to know if you know. You might have a concussion. And then later mm-hmm. on during the internship uh, moment with, well, it, in, inside uh, Oscorp, the uh, the moment she's introducing him to, to Connors and she says he's got the second highest IQ in the school or he's the – and he goes, are you sure about that? She goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. And there's just, just this little moments where they're sort of ribbing on each other and what we get are – pieces of who Gwen Stacy is as a smart, strong woman. I mean, she's an intern at Oscorp, for goodness sakes. I mean, she is very, this tells me that she's trustworthy, that, that Kurt Connors trusts her, not just as a high school student, but as a, you know, as a, as a, as a comp comrade, that's not the word, but as a coworker, as a, you know, as a, as a fellow brain. So having her fellow, brain. fellow yeah, have her, <laughs> have her, having her connected in that way, with Peter really kind of enhances their relationship. It makes them stronger as a couple where she's not just eye candy. She's not like you said, she's not just bait that she actually has purpose in his life, but she could actually have her own story. If, if we wanted her to, I'd love to see a a story where um, we see her. There's actually a, a, I don't know if it still exists, but it's called spider Gwen. And it's one of the alter, the alternate universe Marvel comics. It's really good. It's what happens if she got the spider, spider bite and it's pretty good i don't know if i I read the first few issues and before i kind of dropped out of comics but uh but yeah i think she's fantastic maybe ryan gosling could be in it i would not be opposed to that either because that's some good chemistry right there (laughs) yeah something i kind of noticed about is one of the differences between the dynamics is that you know and raimi's one she she was almost the more vulnerable of the two and she kind of needed to lean on Peter for strength whereas in this one at least at the very beginning Gwen Stacy's easily the the stronger person in terms of will and things and then uh like you were saying just the the light ribbing on each other and stuff what I love that she was able to do and I think just as it is in the script it could have been annoying. And so it really depends on the cast to be able to bring it to life in a good way. But that kind of character could so easily have just been the really annoying smart girl, like who's going to make fun of you for being smarter. Not make fun of you, but just, I don't know. I, I think the Put dynamic, yeah, it it could have been somewhat annoying, but the way she did it, she finds a way to be likable, even when she's saying, "No, actually, I'm I'm the smarter. Like right. I've got the better grades." Well, and, and then yeah. like even 
Good. Even with um, Andrew Garfield's reaction to her, just kind of looking at her and giving a smile, like it's kind of impossible to still not look at her as a likable character because <laughs> she's saying all these things, but in a weirdly friendly slash comp like com- competitive way. But there's like never any sort of like malcontent behind any of it. Mm-hmm. She just plays her as a very good spirited person who's still willing to, you know, joke around in that kind of way. So. I, she's a great character to me, and what? obviously, yeah. Um, Emma Stone is going to be perfect in whatever movie she's in. <laughs> and she, Gwen Stacy's character, her character as Gwen, exhibits a level of vulnerability that brings that vulnerability out in in Peter. Because one thing that surprised me in this was how quickly, but it, after watching it, this didn't surprise me. But how quickly he revealed who he was, he revealed his, quote, secret identity. And I think it was less about impressing her and more about saying, look, I need someone to know this about me because I, because I trust you, because I need you in my life. I need you to know this about me so that you can be aware of the life that, that you're getting yourself into, not only as my friend, but eventually as my love interest. And that added a really great dynamic to their relationship because it exhibited a sense of trust that each of them had to have for one another. And that was believable to me. It didn't feel unearned at, at the point where he revealed himself to her. Um, and he, when he said what he did and she kind of, she was really surprised and then he kisses her and um, you get into the, you know, the, the rest of the film uh, to me that those moments didn't feel at all out of place. They felt, kind of perfectly succinct with how the movie was progressing. Yeah. And there's a really charming, you know, indie dramedy sensibility that Mark Webb brings to it that, that, that could have, you know, become grading as uh, James said, but there's just something so just, just so adorable about how the entire relationship is handled. I'm just, every time they're on the screen, I'm just, just, you know, smiling. Cause there's, they're so, they're so great together. Um, and I guess to move on to the other cast, uh, Martin Sheen, this guy is so, he's such a lovely man, <laughs> or at least he's, uh, he plays very lovely people. Uh, I've been watching the West Wing and, you know, he's he, in that <laughs> film, that show he plays, you know, basically the smartest man in any room he's in and here, you know, he plays, you know, a very salt of the earth kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing how well he can he can go between those roles it, it just flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he 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 makes a great dad with you know the flaws. You know, like when he's the scene where he's yelling at Peter. That feels so real. We've all had those moments with our dads. You mm-hmm. know, where we know our dad cares about us, but he's mad and he's yelling at us because we did something stupid. And it just it just feels really real. And you and even though he doesn't have a lot of screen time, I think he, he leaves a really uh, good impression on the film. He really does. I missed him not being in the rest of the film because of the presence that he brings. There's a lot of criticism that goes into this, this iteration of uncle Ben and Aunt may that they were, I don't know if they were too young. Of course, Marissa Tomei is the, the new aunt may, <laughs> that it seems like with every iteration that Aunt May gets younger and younger. And at some point, I guess they're going to be little babies and whatever. But <laughs> I, I think that as much as, of course I knew a little backstory about, um, I can't remember her name now. Um, 
who plays Aunt May in this one. Sally Field. Sally Field, thank you. Sorry. Gosh, that's terrible that I don't I didn't know her name. <laughs> that she didn't really care for the character. She didn't really have a lot of ownership in it. I don't know if that's the case with Martin Sheen, but I think as an actor, I'd like to believe because I've I love the West Wing. I adore it. It's probably my favorite TV series, at least the first four seasons. And he's a he's you know, one of the main reasons why he brings a sense of of approachability in in that role as president of the United States. And I think he does the same thing here as an Uncle Ben that he's not just likable, but he's respected. Um, at least to me, not necessarily to Peter because they have that falling out. But it makes the weight of that voicemail at the very end, we get to hear the whole thing have so much more meaning. And I I that's a fantastic job of casting and writing to get me as an audience member invested in a character who's not on screen very often, who we get little bits of who he is. We get his sort of the fix it man who is reluctantly eating his wife's meatloaf for, you know, 12, 13 (laughs) years. And, um, what we get is just like, I think with Peter, uh, the the reaction we get someone who left this world too soon, and I don't know that I felt that with with Ben in in Ramey's. I I don't How I I don't I, I I didn't, and I think part of it was the fact that Patrick. I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. <laughs> this is where the roads divide right here. <laughs> when was it going to happen? What I what I mean is I didn't connect with that dynamic as much as I did with with this dynamic and maybe it was because Aunt May felt like a grandmother to me (laughs) in the Raimi edition whereas if I'm looking at when you introduce Peter's parents in this film it's believable to me to to see that his brother or her brother that they're about that age and so they feel I feel like I can relate to them as parents more than I can to an uncle Ben or an aunt may in Raimi's because it feels like he's hanging out with his grandparents. That doesn't mean that it was inaccurate from the comics. I think, you know, I love, I love the aunt may uncle Ben, uh, elements in, in the comics. And they're definitely older, just like with Alfred, uh, uh, Michael Caine's always going to be my Alfred in, in the cinematic universe, but that's clearly not, who he is in the comics. He's much older, skinnier, and, you know, it, it's just... So I'm I'm okay with sort of having my own opinion saying I prefer the Aunt May Uncle Ben in this one more than anything. And some... and mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's because it had to do with the fact that I connected with Ben more than I did in Raimi's. Yeah, there's a really good, uh, you know, grounded family dynamic they have together. Uh, you know, first time we meet... Ben, you know, he's barefoot tracking water across the floor because the basement's flooded. It just feels really grounded and real. And I, just the three fantastic actors you have that they really sell that, that they're a family or, or, you know, a cobbled together family after a tragedy. Yeah, it, it's sad to hear what Sally Field has to say about it. Although, I, you know, I don't really know what goes on behind the, the scenes, but I really like the whole dynamic. Wait, she, she said things about it? Yeah, she was interviewed about the role of of Aunt May and, and she just wasn't excited about the character. Uh, I don't I liked her. <laughs> well, I mean, her performance is great. I mean, it's, it's not the, and that's the, that, <laughs> that's the bad part about knowing stuff like in behind the scenes. 
about a character kind of like with, you know, Casey Affleck and the, you know, the, the stuff going on with him around the time that he got the Oscar nomination for best actor for Manchester. Uh, it sort of sours <laughs> your perception of, of a person. And so when you get into the superhero genre where you are in love with certain characters, you want the people portraying these characters to be just as in love with them as you are. And so when you get kind of a, a place, someone like Sally Field who says, eh, I could take it or leave it with Aunt May. I'm going, that's a pivotal role in Parker's life. What are you doing? Right. And I just, I kind of choose to ignore that interview and be like, she loved the role. She did she great. Considered you know? it the role because she really time. was good. Yeah. It's just, you love me. You really love me. You know, it's just, I, I think her chemistry with Ben, I think sold it for me. And had I not, you know, known that, after the fact, I think I would have been sold on on her as well. But there's a little sour sourpuss in me. One of the <laughs> things that you had said, Gabe, you know, introducing him as this guy with his shoes off and something up with the plumbing, you said it it gives it the sense of grounded realism. And that was my favorite thing about their whole relationship is, I mean, he gives a derivation of the whole with great power comes great responsibility speech. You know, it's not about choice responsibility that's what's at stake so we hear it but he never he never feels like this is his role in the sort like this is a superhero story and this is the role that he's meant to fill he definitely fills the role but he fills it in a way that fathers are meant to in real life like he feels like a very real person who's not giving that line that you're going to plaster all over you know the comic book pages like he's literally he's just this uncle trying to act as a dad and his relationship with mm-hmm. Peter is just incredibly believable to me. Like uh one one of the scenes to me that highlights this the best is whenever Peter forgets to pick up Aunt May and he comes in and I remember being like that's that's exactly what the situation would look like where Aunt May is saying like it's it's a big deal I don't it's no big thing, but he's saying, no, it, it is a big deal, even if you don't think it is, because he is a young man who needs to learn. Like, everything about that scene of him not doing it just for the sake of yelling. And there's, even even as he is yelling, there's always, like, a hint of, not even, even more of a hint, just there's always a sense of understanding. Like, he's not, oh, he is blaming him, but it's never this, like, look at what you did. It's... I'm trying to help you. I'm being your father. I'm showing you that you left her to walk for this amount of time, this length, get on a subway. Like that it just everything about that whole situation felt very real. The idea that it wouldn't have been Aunt May to have been so pissed. It would have been him saying, regardless of the fact that everything turned out okay here, like we're gonna continue living here and we can't let this happen again, and you're the age where you should know better and Everything about all three of the characters in that house, I just completely buy that there's a house in New York with those three people living in it, and that that <laughs> dynamic goes on there regularly. Oh, absolutely. And I think that what we see in that is also how deeply Ben loves May. I mean, we, we see that so prevalently, even in their little one-liners about the meatloaf and and all that. We The bowling trophies... We, we get the sense that these guys have been married for so many years, that they've got this incredible love relationship, and that, I mean, we, we see when Peter's handed off to them after his parents take off, 
but I, I would like to believe that there was no hesitation on their part to take over this role. I'd like to believe that they were only children or they, or they, they didn't, they weren't able to have kids and maybe Peter was fulfilling that role to them. But James, you said something in that Ben talks to Peter and he lectures Peter the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. While it is spoken to uncle Ben to Peter about being Spider-Man because this movie isn't about Spider-Man in essence, it's about Peter. I'm glad that that line wasn't put in one because it would harken back to, Oh, is that line delivered as good as in Raimi's? You know, it would get a comparison, which I think is unfair, but the omission of that to me reinforced that, that down to earth Peter Parker story and less about the high flying Spider-Man story that, that we got in the, in the previous iteration. So it definitely reinforced it for me and it, it, it made it work. The absence of that, it didn't feel like it was missing. It felt like maybe, you know, maybe it was reworded or maybe it was kind of living in a different type of phraseology or whatever, but I, I didn't miss that line. I wasn't looking for it at all. Uh, I, I didn't either. I think they they kind of worked it in where at the end of the day, you could still say that a message, something that Ben was trying to get across to him was this like this mantra, great power comes great responsibility. If you have the ability to do something, you're like just like your father said, you have a moral obligation to do that. The message got across, but it, it got across in a way that sounds far more conversational, like a way that so that someone would say it. And then just quickly, one of the things that I also like that you said was that you know, he's he's getting on to him just because, you know, it's something that Peter should know better. But there is definitely that, like, the deep love for May is part of the reason. And I love it's just one really quick line when he says, you left your Aunt May, and then he pauses to say, my wife. And then he goes back. Yeah. At the, so, like, it's, yeah. it's very clear the amount of love he has for her mm-hmm. is, very like, definitely a reason as to why he's so upset as to, you know, what Peter would have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just quickly rounding off the rest of the cast. Um, uh, do you know how to pronounce the uh, is it Reese Evans? Or, do you know how to pronounce that name? Either of you? I, t- I don't. Sorry. I just go with the character names. <laughs> Whatever. Kurt, Kurt Connors. Uh, I, I think I think he's really underwritten. That, that was disappointing, but I thought he did give a solid performance. You know, as you know, the kind of caring but aloof doctor with that hint of madness behind his eyes. I think he did basically all he could with the role, which was a little thankless, but I, I did I do like him when he's on screen. I do too. Kurt Connors, again, I'm gonna go back to Spider-Man Blue, read it if you can. Kurt Connors is a part of Spider-Man's history. And the thing that Marvel gets criticized for quite a bit, and I think they have done a lot better with this latest iteration of Spidey, is a very flat villain. A very, yeah, I, I'm here to destroy the world, and you're going to take me down. You can't do that. And <laughs> Kirk Connors, to me, is a sympathetic villain. He is one whose motives feel very altruistic from the very beginning. I think there's a, there's only one moment in the film where he is sort of threatened 
his his job and his career, his his life investment in this project is threatened in which he then takes the serum and grows the arm in the cocoon thing that you know that grows and what we see though throughout the film especially in the latter half um is you know we see his desire to be complete again to be successful to know that all this stuff that he is invested in he wants it to to pay off not i mean yes he's driven by wanting to make himself whole again but even from the very beginning i think he I don't think he refers to, I think he calls attention to the fact that he's not, I'm not a cripple. I'm a scientist or something like that. I think he, he calls attention to the fact that yes, he doesn't have an arm, but that's not who he's defined by. But throughout the film, I think we see in the latter half, we see regret and torment, which makes his character just a lot more round in the same way that, you know, we get Doc Ock in amazing Spider-Man two, which I, or not amazing, sorry, Spider-Man two, which I think elevates that film to the heights that and the accolades that it gets is because of that rounded villain that is very sympathetic. It's a great foil. And I didn't going into it. I thought this was going to be another flat character, the reptile of really, you know, I mean, these are like 1960s creations. Like let's just come up with a guy who turns into a reptile, you know, but what we get is a guy who is, just like Peter, just like Gwen, we get the human side. We get the non-superhero, supervillain side first to invest in. And we end up, at least I did, caring more than we, than I thought about, that I thought I would about this villain. You know, I didn't want him to die. I wanted him to be redeemed at some point. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that he got redemption. I think Spider-Man, I forget if he, I don't even remember if he made an appearance in the second one, but I, I just, I thought his performance was great. And I thought that it was very much in line with the performances of Garfield and stone. I didn't love it as much, obviously, but it was on par in terms of the quality. Yeah. I think he definitely did a good job. Kind of just to reiterate what Gabe said, he, he did the best job that he could do with that kind of script. And I do really like the moments of just him being human. Um, with him, you know, mentioning to Peter the ability, like some of them have the ability to regrow their appendages. And you're like, obviously, you know what that would mean for me. And then like his, you know, lines, like I'm not a cripple. I'm, I am a scientist. He's, he's very sympathetic. He's not jaded. He, you know, he's hurt by what's happened to him, but he's, it hasn't really made him super jaded. And he just seems like a, a person that you feel is just an honest to goodness person. Um, and I think his performance made it easy to care about him. Um, and like when he actually turns into the lizard, the actual design of it, I think is cool. Other than the face, I think I, I read something <laughs> where they, uh, they didn't do the snout because like, well, we had to have him talk. And then the hub of the desolation of Smaug came out like later <laughs> that year. Or like one year later, and of course we see you can make the snout look like it talks. But um, <laughs> one of the, my biggest criticism of the character is that there to me seems like a, a divorce between Connors and the lizard that shouldn't be there. Obviously they should feel like entirely different and one is crazy and the other is you're, you're supposed to be caring about. But to me... 
and not to keep comparing it to other movies, but like with with the very first one with Green Goblin and Willem Dafoe, what I loved about the Green Goblin was that it, it kind of took the angrier aspects and the slight, not insanity, but you know, well, I guess with, with Willem Dafoe, there always feels like a slight amount of insanity <laughs> behind every performance. But whenever he was on the serum and behind the mask, he was almost living out the things that he wanted to do as Norman Osborn. Uh, you know, he lives out his revenge on the people who fired him. And then he gets revenge on the person who stopped him from continuing. And then he finds out that the person who stopped him from doing that, Spider-Man, now he's at odds with his son who seems to be growing more sympathetic to him. So he's like, well, now I've, I want him to appreciate me more as a father. So now I'm going to put on the mask and go. It was very much the same the same character there you could see, you could trace motivations from Norman Osborn to the Green Goblin whereas with with Lizard to me it just kind of felt like it came out of the blue like I'm gonna turn the whole world into reptiles because they're better than humans mm. it just I don't <laughs> I don't see that it, it felt like that motivation his whole goal as the lizard had very little in common with who Kurt Connors was I mean I, I get it the, the idea that He's using science to cure people and to make people better. But it just feels like they they just kind of jumped the shark with his whole, like, let's turn the whole world into a bunch of, like, anthropomorphic lizard people. And mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think there was definitely, even with, I think a good villain can be sympathetic and also have this dichotomy of an id and superego of their, their human counterpart. Um, I think that Willem Dafoe does that, that you're right. He lives out, I think, the id portion of his personality through the Green Goblin. He has that freedom to do it. Uh, you can call it a Jekyll and Hyde mentality. Uh, you know, The Joker, I think, is sort of a kind of a, maybe a, a weird extension of that where he's just sort of living in his id <laughs> after he's transformed. But yeah, I think that as much as we kind of invest in Kirk Connors, I, I would like to have seen a little bit more connective tissue between his motive and I, I think they tried to do that with sort of the the voiceover narrative in his head, kind of battling with that. But but yeah, I don't think it was as strong as it could have been. And I think you could have done a lot more with, with the actor. Yeah. Willem DeVoe could play the uh, goblin without the mask. <laughs> that's, how, that's how well he works. <laughs> this is character. true. This is true. <laughs> he could have. Yeah. Uh, and finally, um, I, re- I really like Dennis Leary. Where's he been? But uh, I thought he was he was a lot of fun as, you know, the Gwen Stacy's rather snarky dad, you know. Do I look like the mayor of Tokyo, <laughs> Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I love that dinner scene. I love the I, dinner scene. I was about to say, I forgot how great that scene was. I re- I'm sitting in a room by myself watching this, and I was like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> but that, like, it felt real kind of awkward, where, like, <laughs> I almost felt like the, you know, that extra table that was pulled up to the, the, or the extra chair at the table just kind of looking around, going, like, my gosh, I wish they would stop talking. This is so awkward. But in a way that the movie, <laughs> the, the way that the movie wants you to, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. It, it got the right response for me, at least. Yeah, and there's this. I love the line where I think he's. He says, uh, "I think the 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 punchline for me was when <laughs> Peter goes, yeah, I saw it on a video on the internet.'" And he goes, "Oh, 
you saw it on a video on the internet, like just basically devaluing <laughs> this really amateur detective work. Like, great, you and my twelve-year-old son should probably work for the detective. You know, work in the you know, police department. It's just the way in which he just completely devalues. <laughs> it was so great, and then Gwen's going, "You guys need to stop." <laughs> That's probably one of my favorite scenes in terms of the levity of the film. <laughs> All right, is there anything else you want to mention about the cast members before we move into more? I guess the, some of the technical aspects. There was one, just really quickly. I want to mention I really like what they did with Flash Thompson. I I like that he wasn't this. This movie is about high school, therefore we need the bully to be the bully, and then forget about him. Unless to remind you that he's still the bully. Like, he felt like a real person. Especially, I, I love the moment where he comes back and Peter grabs him and he pushes up against the, the locker and he's like, I'm, I heard about your own, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. Like, like that feels very human. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, he's, I'm not saying, like, all of a sudden he became a great guy. Although the movie does clearly imply that their relationship greatly improved and they seem like they're friends now which I, I also think is kind of cool. But I like the idea that, I mean, he, he's not this great character with this huge arc, but they didn't just use him as a as a tool and nothing else. They're like, okay, we, we need the bully. Let's just have this bully scene real quick. They kind of had him come back and pseudo-redeem himself, and it made him feel more of a human as opposed to a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I can agree yeah, with I that. The actor was really solid too. Mm-hmm. And the moments that he comes back are pivotal for Peter. Want us to kind of accent Peter's strength slash nerdiness at the same time. The second is during a place of, of grief. And then the third is obviously kind of a, the redemptive portion. I, I think those are great little accent pieces that he is a little miniature little signpost for the beginning, middle and end of the film. Yeah. I guess moving to the direction, um, for the most part, I really liked Webb's direct, Mark Webb's direction. Uh, his only other film before this was 500 Days of Summer, and I think there are some a couple of you know newbie mistakes. You know, I think sometimes the editing feels off, off, or you know the camera's too close to the action. But overall, I was really impressed with his direction of the action. Um, like the way he uses Spider-Man, like like the, in the school fight. Or on top of the tower, just the way mm-hmm. Spider-Man like swings and slides around and climbs over. There's a, it's it's it was something com- it was a style completely different from Raimi's uh, style of fighting, but that also felt obviously completely organic to the character. And one thing that's very hard to do with CGI is give it a sense of weight and you know just the real world world physics. And I think both. Homecoming and Raimi's films suffer a little bit. They feel a bit too CGI and bendy. This one, I really felt every time he swung, every time he climbed over something, it fe- they, they felt like they were really trying to get a sense of weight and grit and realism and just mm-hmm. just actual physics, you know, to make it, uh, to give it some impact. Um, and which was so crazy because because of just how agile this new Spider-Man is, that they could make the guy who could do all these crazy moves and do all these awesome things but also give it a weight and sense of uh, realism was really impressive especially for a, a director who's never done action before so i i, I was really uh, I, li- I like what he did here i i did too and this was a big selling point for me 
going into the film was the fact that Webb intentionally said, I'm going to use practical effects and stunts to create my action sequences. I mean, sure, there was some CG, but if you look closely, I think it's the bridge scene after he rescues the little boy, you can see as he shoots his webs, you can see the webs connect with the with the bridge, and then when he lets go, you see him kind of flutter away. Uh, that's, a, that's a small thing, but in the big picture, you think about the previous version of Spider-Man, and he's just shooting his webs like 400 yards away at something that we don't see, and he's swinging and, and screaming, you know, you know, and this is where I think Raimi is successful at giving us our video game Spider-Man that we want to, like, I wanted to hold a game controller in my hand as I was watching Spider-Man, but I'm watching this film and I'm wanting to just follow him and like hang on his shoulders and, and be a part of that acrobat stuff. Like there's the, the practical stunts were great. The, the use of acrobatics, the skateboard stunts, particularly during the, the kind of discovery training montage inside the warehouse. I thought that was fantastic. And everything seemed to feel grounded. Like even, I think one of my favorite, and I'm assuming this was done with CG, but one of my favorite things that he does, and he actually does it twice, once in the third act and then once at the very end as, as we get to that last kind of iconic poster shot, he he takes this his webs he takes his web web shooters and he bends himself back like a slingshot and then he propels himself forward i've never i'd never seen that before i'd always seen the the flipping of the of the web shooters and swinging and then you know sh- you know your legs flying in the air and we got that we got some of those iconic poses and shots from from his swinging but we also got some more grounded stuff and like this is what would happen in in a, in a real world where if Spider-Man actually existed, we'd see him as he was working to to get better. He would swing and land on tables at a cafe in the streets, and even the close-up fight 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 scenes where we'd see him, you know, in, in close-ups. I thought those are some of my favorites. The 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 hand-to-hand combat uh, without the villain necessarily, but just early on in the film, I thought those were really great because they they helped establish a sense of of real real world this is how spider-man would fight on the ground he's not just swinging through the air and landing on people now of course when we get to the school it's something totally different which was equally a great selling point but i definitely preferred the more realistic choreographed fight scenes that um that that were established early on what's weird is that i agree with everything i was saying about like the the feeling of weight and the real world aspects of the fact that that's kind of what you would have to do. But what's so crazy is even with that all being said, it still feels the most stylized as well. Mm. Like the pose, like he, he's striking, he finds Mark Webb finds a way to have him strike all the poses that you kind of want without feeling like he's contradicted himself. Um, And one of the things that I really liked was I, I get the spider comparison in this one. Like he moves like a spider and one of the things that i loved about uh the fight in the school is as he's shooting as he's webbing them up and then he starts crawling around him like an actual spider you know going like you can see as he wraps it around from every angle the the weird he's the costume especially being like skin tight he just looks super slender and the way his elbows move 
it looks exactly like a human moving around like a spider and like mimicking the real world way that they use their webs and that they use their limbs and stuff. And so because they're so nimble and they're so just looking at them, you know, it's creepy the way they move around. You're able to have that very stylized thing because they also look like they just move in ways that shouldn't work. But because we know it's real life and they're just kind of mimicking that, we, we get that really weird inhuman kind of movement without it feeling, you know, super fake. Or super creepy. Because, I mean, if you're moving like a spider, that can you can come across as real creepy, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. I definitely like the, um, the, the outfit. Spidey's outfit gets a lot of criticism. And I was doing some research before the episode to find out why there was such a drastic, uh, drastic why there was a change from the first film to the second. You know, his eyes are now white in the second one. And um, in, in a sense that, like, with... Cavill's Superman outfit is a little bit more bright in the second in Batman v Superman, although that much. I I loved the the outfit in this. I loved the intimidation that the eyes had. Like as soon as th- there's that first close up of him, where uh, it's it's after he's 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 quipping with the guy that's trying to jack the car, and then and then you see this like serious moment where his his head turns a little bit and you see those really like intimidating black eyes i was like that's cool that to me i mean you you didn't and it didn't feel different to me it didn't feel like that's not spider-man he's not mean no he's intimidating if i had a outfit like that i'd be looking like that too i'd want my (laughs) i'd want my outfit to be that intimidating too i don't want it to be your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I'm out to get somebody. So <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a great choice from a design standpoint to design his costume the way, uh, the way it was. Yeah. I remember like the first scene he puts it on. I forgot how much I liked the design. Um, you know, having just watched Spider-Man the day before, I, I remember seeing that and be like, yeah, this is definitely my favorite suit of all of them. And then whenever he first wears it, it was like, oh man, I forgot. This one looks really cool too. <laughs> So that's one thing that I feel like Spider-Man's always had in all of his iterations. I've There's never really been a suit I haven't been a fan mm-hmm. of. Yeah, I honestly don't get how someone who reads comics could complain about a change. <laughs> <laughs> there is literally anything you can imagine that's been done in comics. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I also really like the suit. I think it looks pretty cool. This is the 500th version of this costume you've seen, and this is the one you complain about, the one that has darker eyes. <laughs> I, I think my, my my last big point that I liked about this movie, you know, it sounds kind of sadistic, but I I love how much they hurt Peter in this movie. <laughs> he he spends the entire film bruised and bloody. The moment the moments when the, like the uh, lizard has him, his tail wrapped around his neck and he rips his uh, hood off, he just he looks so hurt mm-hmm. and. I, I like I, what that, that that really shows you the cost that Peter is bringing on himself every time he puts on this suit. He knows I'm, I'm gonna it's, it's gonna hurt me. There there are people out there who are gonna beat me up, but I'm gonna keep doing it. And you know I, I like how just the, it 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 damages his, his relationships. You know the entire film he's really having a lot of problems with Aunt May just because he doesn't know how he can't tell her. And she's obviously worried. Why is my kid constantly coming back bloody? And I think it, it really showed you know the cost of being Spider-Man, which makes it all the more 
inspiring that he keeps doing mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think that was something that was a little miss, kind of missing from uh, Homecoming that I, I think this film really got right, e- maybe even more so than Raimi's did, and that they did it as well. Yeah, I, I think the 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 standout moment for me, besides the the rescue of the little boy, that I clearly remember from my my first and even my previous instances of the film are the the construction workers that control the cranes that help them kind of get all the way down and i i had to really kind of check myself and say is this really cool or really cheesy and i think it's both because (laughs) because it does feel a little unbelievable i mean you're not going to necessarily get that many people getting cranes but this is where the comic book aspect comes in and this sense of loving your friendly neighborhood spider-man and I get what's happening here. You get this little kind of somewhat cameo by C. Thomas Howell who plays, you know, he's getting his, he's repaying this, this thing, you know, this moment that Spider-Man has saved his son. And what I loved about it, going back to the, 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 the web shooters is that again, we see the web shooters hit the cranes. They're not just flying at random things, but the choreography of the swinging is great. Now it was too long. Uh, This, this time around, I clearly kind of picked that out. Like, okay, maybe give us about 10 seconds less of this swinging. Show us a few of your cool moves. But for the most part, I think this kind of, I think this was Webb's way of saying, hey, I want to show off Spider-Man. I want Spider-Man <laughs> to be Spider-Man right here and now. And he does it again near the end of the film where you know we see him do his little like slingshot and then that last kind of overly slow-mo pose that ends the movie but i i I still have a a really soft a great soft spot for that moment because i thought yay they love their friendly neighborhood spider-man they're here for him and stuff and even though it feels unrealistic at this point on this viewing i can't help but really still adore that it's it's a weak point of the film for me now but i still think it's a it's one that that is a favorite of mine yeah i mean I always love like you know, the moments where New York is to fight back. Mm-hmm. It, it happens a couple times in the Raimi films. And I like, you know, the idea, you know, of a good deed paying off. You know, he does a good he does something for someone else and they're able to return the favor. And it, it also, you know, plays off I saw him being hurt. He's been shot. He he literally can't get where he needs to go. And then he, New York comes together and provides the way. Mm. Is it cheesy? You bet. <laughs> Do I care? Not really. <laughs> It, it reminds me of that uh, that interview with Patty Jenkins after Wonder Woman, where she was talking about cheese, and she was saying that cheese wasn't really a word that she she used because you know you could just say it's it's just being honest and compassionate and things like that. And I, I agreed with the sentiment of what she was saying, but where I disagreed was the idea that we can't use the word cheese. I think cheese can be good just as much as it can be bad. I don't think I think we've allowed the word cheesy to have such a negative connotation that sometimes like, sure, it's cheesy, but I love it. Um, (laughs) And the reason that I still like, even if we like can argue of why some things about it don't work, I still love the moment. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things about Spider-Man is that, you know, every hero kind of has their city, you know, Batman has Gotham and, and, um, you know, all, all of their all of the heroes even like you know daredevil has new york as well but i feel like there's just a very intimate relationship between spider-man and new york um and that's that's something that i think all versions have really done well so far is that he is the friendly neighborhood spider-man he is this place's hero he's not just 
he doesn't exist just to stop bad guys anywhere. Like this is the city and they, he loves it just as much as they return the love to him. And so, you know, we get asked like montages in the first of Raimi's about all of the people talking about him and all the good things he's done and the, the guy writing a song about him. And then in homecoming with them just seeing him like, Hey, can you do a flip? And like, he's actually just interacting with them. And I love that here too, where they seem as like this guy is working to protect New York, which is a place that we all live and we all love. We're going to have like, it's, this is going to be a joint effort. So I've always loved that, that every movie about him so far has never forgotten that. And has always to me really understood the importance of Spider-Man being there for New York and New York in return being there for him. So yeah, I, I like the moment as cheesy as it might be. Yeah, New York has definitely always been a supporting actor in any of the Spider-Man universes that have been shown on the big screen and even in, in the comics that just like Gotham, I think in the DC world, Gotham is that. I mean, it's the closest that we can get to uh, a supporting actor in being that that's not yeah. a human or, or whatever. Um, I'd like to say Metropolis is that way, but it's not nearly the extent that Gotham is. And New York is probably the closest and in connection with Spider-Man. I love that you, that you pointed that out, James, because there are a lot of superheroes in the Marvel comics universe that live in New York, but Spider-Man's the only one that I feel like is synonymous with that city. I mean, Daredevil is, but his is more of Hell's Kitchen, which is a portion of the city. And, um, but when I think of New York, the superhero I think of first is Spider-Man. Yeah, because he he needs the city to function, as we saw in Homecoming. He needs tall buildings. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So uh, my final point is best Stanley cameo ever, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> in the library. <laughs> it's up there for sure it's up there for sure all right either of y'all have any points before we move into our final thoughts that you want to mention there were a couple of things like two things that i wanted to mention they're both negative but they're not big negatives and so it's just to mention them really quick (laughs) all right let's move on Um, it's not my show one of them was to me it, it felt just the obsession that Captain Stacy had with Spider-Man, it it wasn't ever, and so both of these are super minor. Um, but it would have been completely normal. Like I I understand why he's like I'm a police officer. This is a mask vigilante. He's doing he's not doing things the right way. But there was a moment where I'm like, okay, all right, where it's it's right after the school part, the school scene, and they've already fought, and they they brief debrief him on what's happened. And they're like, oh, the lizard just got away. And he's like, what about the Spider-Man? And they're like, oh, he went that way. It's like, I want him off my streets. I'm like, he just stopped a giant, like, eight-foot lizard from killing kids in the school your daughter goes to. I was just kind of annoyed that he took time to say, and what about the Spider-Man? Because he's still on my street. Like, I was say, it felt a little, I don't know, out, out of character, given how much he cares for his daughter. I don't know. I just didn't buy that that would be on his mind enough to like warrant saying, all right, let's not put all forces on this big lizard that's running around killing people. Cause I want that spider guy off my streets. <laughs> yeah, I do agree with that. But that said, I love how they're they're uh, how they end up in the end, you know, with him yeah. and, uh, and, uh, what's the, what's his, what's his character? Captain Stacy. Captain Stacy, you know, him with the shotgun fighting the lizard. I think it's, it, I think it's a really awesome, uh, where it goes, yeah. but yeah, I do agree. The obsession's a little bit much. And then 
the last thing, and this isn't even just specific to this movie. There are probably there's probably like a plethora of movies I could bring up, but I've never understood, or I I understand it, but it's always bothered me when people underreact to things happening. Like when it's just played for comedy, like he catches a football and he throws it and he bends the field goal and they're like, hey man, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) And he he completely breaks the basketball goal from, from its post and they're like, oh. Did you get suspended? I can't believe what you did. Because I mean, even in the in Raimi's Spider Man, like he he jumps and does a backflip over a guy charging at him and punches him and sends him flying like twenty feet. And they're like, "What's up, bro?" Like, <laughs> clearly just... you've never lived in my city. Yeah, that happened all the time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so like, I, I've never, I've always wanted like. Maybe it's just because I was like, I like to picture if I was there, like just, man, people would be in awe. But like the fact is, it's ha- it happens a lot, I feel like in comic book movies where someone does something extraordinary and it's kind of played for last and it's like, like, whoa. I mean, even whenever, you know, he he's startled and he jumps and he sticks to the roof and they're like, you got a problem, man? I'm like, he's he's crawling like a spider on the roof. This is not a guy that you just pick a fight with. But that, that was the last issue i i guess <laughs> all right on that negative note let's, let's move into our final thoughts uh you want to start patrick just what what you want to leave your the audience with about this film i, I would say to visit this if you haven't uh, as, as much as we've seen a lot of versions of spider-man and uh, based on the track record of this character we'll probably see a new iteration in five years of a different actor that's <laughs> probably going to be even younger and dressed in an even more controversial suit uh but <laughs> No, I, I would say this is a this is a great, um, I would say unique, a great refreshed take on on the web slinger. I think it's I think it's worth watching, if for no other reason than just to see a grounded aspect of a character who is you know we're used to seeing flying through the air and being in bright colors. The the darker aspect of it, the grounded, grittier aspect of it works in an incredible way. And if you're a fan of that, if you're a fan of the DCEU's tone or whatever it is that you want to call it, and a fan of the the Nolan Batman trilogy, this is going to be right up your alley. But at the same time, it's also got a lot of levity to it. It feels like an incredibly well-balanced film. And if you can take it as a standalone <laughs> Spider-Man film, I would say it's one of the the better adaptations of this comic book character. So if you haven't seen it, Man, check it out, and uh, and do yourself a you know a solid and 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 see this. Yes, someone needs to make like the Gwen Stacy edit of Spider the Amazing Spider Man two, just so we could watch this and complete that arc. What they should do is just make this an extra long director's cut with and add the Gwen Stacy elements to it. <laughs> do that too. The amazingly long Spider Man. <laughs> I was about to say because. I do, I really want to recommend it as a standalone, but like, man, there's there's such a great payoff to this, but it's, it's in such a poor movie. Uh, uh, all right, well. so what about you, James? So I would say that just my reaction to this is a testament to the fact that this is absolutely worth a revisit. Um, given, you know, the internet's proclivity to just let an initial opinion 
become like the definitive stance on something given enough time. There's probably a lot of people who think they dislike this movie more than they do because I was one of them as of yesterday. Or not as of yesterday, like I was one until, you know, well actually just until about an hour ago whenever I watched it again. But it is definitely worth, you know, being compared with these other great superhero origin movies. I think it's admirable how much they legitimately care about the characters. Like a a repeated theme is just the fact that this movie is primarily about Peter and his relation to other people. And that's what I love about Origins. And I think this movie nails everything that there is to love about an origin story. Um, You know, don't let The Amazing Spider-Man 2 sour your opinion of this one. It's a great movie. And I would say it's absolutely worth a rewatch. Yeah. um, Yeah. Same as you. I I came away. I was a little cautious about actually bringing this on just because some of the negative thoughts that I've kind of built up since The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So I also came away, you know, really respecting this film and what Mark Webb did and brought to this uh, to this film a lot more. Um, so yeah, if you saw it and you don't really care for it, I think give it a rewatch. You know, pay close attention to uh, Peter Parker's arc and you know just the amount of love and care that Mark Webb puts into the characters and their interactions and all of that because that, that's you know that's the core of every film, most films, you know, and I think that really shines here. Also, just the action is amazing. Really, really good action scenes, if that's your thing, you know. It, it's I, The plot has some iffy elements concerning the lizard and the whole Oscorp stuff, and I think it does rely a bit too much on promises of cool things to happen in the future that don't really get paid off later. But for what it is, I think it's a really solid uh, and and uh, different take. It's a lot more different from Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man than most people think. I mean, there's so many people, as uh, James said, you know, the, the first reaction is the uh, the dominant one, and everybody says, "Oh, it's just a rehash." I mean, why do we need another origin story? It's because you can tell a great story, you know. And I think they told a great story here. All right, uh, so that was our review for the Amazing Spider-Man. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, and uh, if you want to find other episodes, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. So uh, thanks for coming on, Patrick. This was this was really fun. I was really, really excited when you guys asked me to come on and talk about this movie. So it needs a champion, and I'm glad I got a chance to to help facilitate that. So I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about this. Yeah, um, and uh, I want to give you one last chance to you know plug uh, your podcast and whatnot. Yeah, if you guys want to, if you guys want to check it out, uh, we're at uh, Feelin Film on Twitter, F E E L I N. F-I-L-M. Yeah, make sure I spelled that correctly. <laughs> and you can check out all of our episodes, past and present, and potentially future, if you're listening to this whenever, at feelinfilm.com. We also have a lively Facebook discussion group that you can get to from the, the website or from our Facebook page. Um, and there's just a lot of good conversation going on there about about movies mainly, but just um, just some just lively discussion, great opinions, uh, weekly poll question that comes out. And uh, we love, love, love good conversation. It's why we do the podcast and it's why we have the discussion group. So check us out if you want. Uh, if you want to, we do newer films in the theaters. We also cover some older films here and there. Um, we've done theme months. We'll have another theme month coming up in September honoring uh, book to movie adaptations for the back to school crowd. 
And so be sure to check that out. If you want to follow me, you can find me at the big three social networking sites, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H, or you can find out more about me at this is patch.com. And, uh, yeah, so that's about it. And I can definitely attest to the quality of a uh, feel and film. It's definitely a fun podcast to listen to. And like you said, the, there's definitely a lot of lively discussion going on at the, uh, <laughs> at the Facebook page. Uh, a lot as well. It's, it's a lot of fun to to talk about movies with other people who love them. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh, so for next week, um, I know we said uh, Men in Black Three, but we actually have some plans in the works. So uh, that's all I'm going to say right now. But we won't be doing that. Uh, it'll be James Pick again. So uh, what are we looking at? So continuing the trend of introducing people to comedies I love, um, to, and it it's actually fitting now because. Today marks the 10-year anniversary for the movie Hot Rod. And that is a comedy that I love and have revisited time after time after time. Um, And I didn't realize it was underrated until I realized it had a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, But I, I feel like its reception has kind of proved that every now and then there's just a very big disconnect between critics and audience because this is built up quite the passionate following um so i'm excited if nothing else just to see your reaction to the movie because it's it's super weird and absurd and random but i find it absolutely hysterical i had never even heard about this film before this week so we will see so until next week when we find out what gabe actually thinks about this we'll see you later see ya